When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This is the Asian Madness Podcast a podcast where we discuss all things true crime, morbid, mysterious, and odd from the Asian continent. I am your host, Jessica. Myanmar, also known as Burma, officially known as the Republic of the Union of Myanmar, is a Southeast Asian country that borders Bangladesh, India, China, Laos, and Thailand. On the southwestern area of the country, you will find the Bay of Bengal, and around the southern tip, you will find the Andaman Sea. Size-wise, Myanmar is about 261,000 square miles, and population as of recent is around 55 million. The capital city of Myanmar is Napida, meaning the city of kings, but the largest and probably most well-known city is Yangon, or also referred to as Rangoon, which also used to be the capital city. Napida only became the capital city in 2005, so it's fairly new. There is only one official language in Myanmar, which is Burmese, but there are many other languages that are recognized in certain regions of the country such as Kachin, Kaya, Karen, Chin, etc. Script-wise, the Burmese script is recognized as the official script. The thing about many Southeast Asian countries is that they tend to be quite multi-ethnic. They have a lot of neighbors from nearby countries and regional dwellers within the country, and that's also the case for Myanmar. About two-thirds of the people are ethnically Burman or Bamar, which is a Sino-Tibetan ethnic group. The remaining third of the population consists of Shan, Karen, Rakhine, Chinese, Indians, etc. Religion-wise, almost 90% of the population follow Buddhist teachings, and the rest adhere to Christianity, Islam, and other religions. So, one thing you may wonder about is, do we call this country Myanmar or Burma? You've probably heard it both ways, but not sure why. 
Before the year 1989, the country was known as Burma, which probably has to do with the dominant ethnic group from the country, Bamar or Burman. In 1989, the military government that was ruling the country decided that the name Burma was not inclusive enough of all its ethnic groups and it showed strong ties with its colonial past, which I'm guessing it's the British. In an article from PBS, it states that things were bad for Burma in the late 80s, so the military government was trying to give the nation a quote-unquote new look by changing its name. Although the name was internationally changed to Myanmar, it didn't really make a difference for those who were actually from Burma. Some countries or groups recognize them as Myanmar, while others have continued to refer to it as Burma. So, let's talk some history now. One of our oldest ancestors were said to have been living in this area, known as present-day Myanmar, around 750,000 years ago. Humans, stone tools, Neolithic Age items, and cave paintings were also discovered somewhere along central Burma, possibly having existed between 10,000 and 6,000 BCE. People from Burma were also one of the first to grow rice and domesticate animals. The area basically went through a whole shift, from the Stone Age, then to the Bronze Age, then eventually to the Iron Age, starting from around 500 BCE. So let's move on to less prehistoric things to maybe more relatable history things. Around the year 2 BCE, early Burmese inhabitants moved southward from present-day China towards Burma, creating Burma's first city-state. The people were called the Pew people, and they were very much into Buddhism, which definitely shows in all the architecture, the culture, all that. Hundreds of years later, city-states became more and more common, and aside from the Pew people, there were also the Mon and the Arachnese. Around this time, a settlement at a place called Bagan was founded by the Bamar people, and it is currently a UNESCO World Heritage Site in Burma. Super beautiful and breathtaking place. You can also take hot air balloon rides. So a bunch of the city-states in that area unified, and in the 11th century, it became the Pagan Kingdom. And it was considered a very powerful force in Southeast Asia. Burmese culture around this time began to overshadow the original cultures and peoples, including the Pew and the Mon. As for the next few hundred years, many people tried to invade the area including the Mongolians. Burma then was basically a country filled with smaller states. The two most powerful ones emerged in the 1300s, the Ava and the Hanthawadi Kingdom. The Ava Kingdom, though, was eventually worn down due to constant warfare, so the Hanthawadi rose up. This was also around the time where it was considered the Golden Age for Burmese culture, where it, quote, grew more confident, popular, and stylistically diverse, end quote. In the 16th century, a young king became powerful after defeating the Hanthawadi in war, which gave birth to the Tanggu dynasty. This dynasty eventually went on to conquer various different lands in Southeast Asia, including parts of present-day Thailand and southern China. Then comes my quote-unquote favorite part. Around the 17th century, Europeans began to show up, starting with the Portuguese, the French, and then the British. They were unsuccessful at first, though, and the Portuguese were defeated once the Shan states and the dynasty fought them off. 
in a good way, this caused all the Burmese states to kind of work together, come up with plans, and amazingly, everything was going great for the country. Political warfare was still going on though, and eventually the Hanthawadi Kingdom, who was backed by the French and the British, rose up once again and ended the Tongu dynasty. But there was a resistance group that was not interested in this new kingdom. So they united the entire Burma and basically drove out the French and the British, which is pretty impressive. Moving on to the late 18th century, Burma got into many wars with Siam, which is present-day Thailand. Basically, a lot of land was conquered and then lost and so on, extending from Myanmar to Siam to China and British India. Then came the Anglo-Burmese Wars, and there were three in total. At the end of the third one, in 1886, the British pretty much had control of the entire country. So now we move on to an era known as British Burma. As you know, India and Bangladesh were also under British rule, and because they were all under British rule, a lot of people began to migrate between these countries. Tensions were high, the Burmese were dissatisfied with outsiders disrespecting their cultures, which makes sense. It's like someone forcing their way into your house, pretending to be nice to you, but doing a complete makeover and setting new rules, then getting mad at you for not following their rules. Now onto another important part of Asian history, World War II. And yes, you guessed it, Japan arrived in Burma and tore the whole country apart, like they did to most other Asian countries at the time. On the other hand, though, they managed to drive out the British, but no matter how you look at it, it's a huge blow and loss for the Burmese people. Many Burmese military groups fought alongside the Japanese against the British, and one group was called the Burma Independence Army, led by a man named Aung San. Spoiler alert, Japan lost the war and left Burma in July of 1945. Burma officially became an independent country on January 4, 1948, and its name was changed to the Union of Burma. In 1962, a military group staged a coup and everything became government-controlled under the ideology of, quote, Burmese way to socialism, end quote. While they had elections before 1962, the country was operating on a one-party system since then, the Burma Socialist Program Party. The country went to shit during the military one-party ruling, and understandably, people were unhappy and fed up. People began to protest and thousands were killed. Then, in the late 1980s, another military coup was staged, and this is when they tried to quote-unquote rebuild the country by changing its name to the Union of Myanmar and going back to democratic elections. This is where you might hear of the name Aung San Suu Kyi as her political party, the National League for Democracy, won the first elections in 1990. She also happens to be the daughter of the man who created the Burma Independence Army during World War II. Although her party won the election, the military party dismissed it and just kind of ignored it. In 2011, though, the military and the opposition group finally came to an agreement and Aung San Suu Kyi became state councillor in 2015, after spending years locked away at home. Fun fact, Aung San Suu Kyi also received the Nobel Peace Prize in the year 1991 for her, quote, nonviolent struggle for democracy and human rights, end quote. There have been multiple conflicts, wars, political unrest happening in Myanmar in modern times, 
some within the country and some with other countries. If you've been watching the news, even as recent as February of 2021, another military coup took place and the state councillor, Aung San Suu Kyi, and others were taken into custody. I feel like this is a huge deal. Maybe not to most of us since we don't have to live that life, nor are we affected by it. But I really feel like more people should be talking about it, or at least be aware of it. Anyway, here are some interesting things about Myanmar you probably did not know about. 1. It is very common to see the people in Myanmar using a kind of yellow-white paste on their face. This paste is extracted from the tanaka tree bark, and it is used for facial oil control and to tighten one's skin. I mean, natural cosmetics sounds pretty great. Number two, Myanmar is extremely Buddhist, and you will find plenty of pagodas there. The Shredagon Pagoda, though, has more than 4,500 diamonds decorating the top of its temple. And as if that's not impressive enough, the biggest diamond on top is a whole whopping 72 carats. I wonder if anyone has ever tried to steal them. Number 3. Burma is home to some of the best rubies one can find. The most famous one is called the Graf Ruby Ring, which was sold for $8.6 million at an auction in 2015. Number 4. As for wildlife... Myanmar has tons of different species ranging from thousands of bird types to elephants, tigers, and 28 different species of turtles. On a whole different topic though, Myanmar is one of the largest producers of illicit opium and possibly the largest producer of methamphetamine. I mean, good to know, right? I feel like traveling to a place like Myanmar must feel extremely different from going anywhere else. You usually hear about Thailand, you hear about Vietnam, but you don't really hear about Myanmar. If you ever get a chance to travel to Southeast Asia, though, do remember to put Myanmar on your list. They also have really good food there. So today's topic is quite complicated and quite heavy. It's also pretty recent, and for some reason, that has always surprised me. I think that's mostly because I've been lucky and never have had to experience anything drastic like constant bombings, genocide, warfare, so for some reason it feels oddly historical to me even though I know it's not. I have never been persecuted for my beliefs, for what kind of upbringing I had, for my customs, or my religion. For many others though, this is something they may face on a daily basis, and there's very little they can do about it. Today we will look at what is known as the Rohingya Genocide, which actually began ages ago, but in this episode, we will look at the events that took place beginning in 2016, and is unfortunately still ongoing. The Rohingya people from the state of Rakhine in Myanmar have experienced a lot of mistreatment and injustice from their government and it has resulted in a lot of misery and despair. According to journalists and various human rights groups, the Rohingya people have been labeled as one of the most persecuted and most unwanted minorities in the world. Let's begin. The Rohingya people are an Indo-Aryan ethnic group, and they can mostly be found living in the Myanmar state called Rakhine. On the map, it is on the west side of the country, right underneath Bangladesh and along the Bay of Bengal. Religion and culture-wise, they are mostly Muslim, 
not Buddhist like the rest of the country. Their language is also not the same as the one spoken or used by the people of Myanmar, which probably creates a bigger divide. The Rohingya people refer to themselves as indigenous to the area and that they have a long history of being in that area and are directly descendants of Arab traders and the Arakan people, basically people who lived along the coast of Southeast Asia. It makes a lot of sense too, considering they do live on the coastal region of Myanmar. But the Myanmar government disagrees with their roots. They think the Rohingya people migrated from other nearby regions, such as Bangladesh, years ago during the British era, and somehow never left. In the government's eyes, the Rohingya people are illegal immigrants, not citizens of Myanmar. No, it's not really about them being Muslim, because there are plenty of other recognized ethnic groups in Myanmar that are Muslim. For example, the Kaman people, who also happen to live in the Rakhine state. Think of it like this. The government is the parent, and they have several children. Rohingya, Kaman, and others. Kaman and the others get to eat whatever the parent eats. They are publicly recognized by the parent and are just generally accepted. Rohingya, on the other hand, is a child that gets nothing. The parent rejects this child, says they're not theirs, so they basically get no perks. So when you say the Rohingya people, the government would be like, huh, never heard of them. They are actually referred to as the Bengali people, or the people from the Bengal area, meaning South Asia. Not only are they not recognized by their name, they are denied citizenship, a ton of restrictions apply to them when it comes to traveling, education, and civil service work. The Kaman people are not only recognized for who they are, they are actually formally included as one of the ethnic groups from the Rakhine region. Super unfair. So it's understandable why the people of Rohingya would be kind of pissed and upset at the government. They have been living in the same country for years, and yet because the government doesn't want to recognize them, they're just not included in anything, have less rights than others, are pushed around like they don't matter. The Rohingya people have tried multiple times to gain their rights and their right to quote-unquote self-determination. Well, none of these protests and insurrections really worked for them. While the Rohingya people were always a target and always on the radar, things actually got even worse when these two things happened. Operation Dragon King and the 1982 Citizenship Act. Operation Dragon King was carried out because they wanted to get rid of quote-unquote outsiders for the purpose of a national census. How did they treat the Rohingya people? They were arrested, persecuted, killed, and violently attacked. Those who lived ended up as refugees in neighboring countries, mostly Bangladesh, but those that made it out were eventually sent back to Myanmar. These refugee camps were unable to sustain all these people, and many of them ended up dying there as well. In the Citizenship Act of 1982, every other ethnic group got listed in the official list, received citizenship, and the Rohingya were once again excluded. In 1989, the government targeted the Rohingya people once again. The people were forced into labor camps, forced to leave their homes, executed, murdered, you name it. So begins a cycle of the government zeroing in on the Rohingya people 
people fleeing to Bangladesh, then getting sent back. You can imagine how much the population of the Rohingya people must have decreased over the years. Unfortunately, I am unable to give you all the historical details that lead up to this episode's main topic. It's a lot, and I hope you understand and forgive me for this. It's clear that the Rohingya people have been persecuted for years, but for this episode, we will mainly focus on what happened in recent years, starting from 2016. What made these incidents from 2016 and onward different from the ones before? Who is really behind all these terrible acts? What is happening to the Rohingya people? Is anyone doing anything about it? As I mentioned before, the Rohingya people or pro-Rohingya people protested against the government several times since they've been treating them like crap. Of course, this was unacceptable to the government and they would do whatever it took to try and show them who was boss. Violent clashes between the Rohingya people and the Myanmar government and extremist Buddhist monks have been going on for years, and it wasn't looking great. Then, in October of 2016, a group of unidentified men attacked three Myanmar outposts along the Bangladesh-Myanmar border. A total of nine Myanmar officers were killed, and tons of other weapons were stolen, including guns, bullets, and bayonets. Obviously, the Myanmar government was furious and wanted to find those responsible, and of course, wanted to make them pay. So, who was behind this attack? A group called Haraka al-Yakin, or quote-unquote the Faith Movement, also later on known as the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army, aka ARSA, claimed to be responsible for the attack. This group was not only labeled as a terrorist group in Myanmar, but also in Malaysia. But are they terrorists? Fact is, they seem to have ties to Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Saudi donors. And that makes it look that way. In other words, rumor has it they have the funds and are trained to fight. There are also propaganda and training videos online, but I haven't seen any of them yet. There were even rumors stating that many Rohingya people were secretly trained to fight so that made the government want to control and suppress the Rohingya people even more. So this was kind of what got the whole situation started. The Myanmar government and military were furious, so they decided to do what they thought was the right thing to do. Crush the Rohingya people and make sure they never rise up again. From between October and December of 2016, hundreds of people were killed and many more fled to Bangladesh to seek help. Reading about what took place during those months really made me feel sick, and just really sad. The soldiers would burn down houses, mosques, schools, markets, basically any place that could house people. Rohingya men were killed without question. Women were raped or killed, or raped and then killed. Kids were not spared either. It almost felt like the soldiers were having a good time torturing and killing. Those that tried to flee would end up getting gunned down by the military. They spared no one, did not give them a swift death, and instead made sure they suffered as much as possible before finally dying. It's sickening and it's hard to believe that people are capable of such things. But then again, history has repeatedly shown us what humans are capable of. Those that were fortunate enough to escape to Bangladesh were traumatized with what they had to go through. They were alive, but so many of their friends and family members were killed in cold blood. Their homes also destroyed, everything dear to them gone. 
An estimate of at least 50% of the women who made it out alive had been raped and or sexually assaulted. Many others arrived at refugee camps with bullet wounds. So you see, even if you do make it out, it is not without emotional and physical scars. A few hundred people with ages ranging from 10 to 75 were also arrested by the police, their crimes being, quote, collaborated with the attackers, end quote. The police claimed that everyone confessed to aiding the attacks on the border officers, including the children. I honestly don't know if I buy that, because kids are kids. And also, when you're interrogated by people who are capable of killing and torturing you, wouldn't you just kind of go along with it? Falsely admit to stuff to appease those in charge? During the first half of 2017, Conflict continued between the police, military, and ARSA, the insurgent group. There were many casualties from all sides, but most of them were innocent Rohingya civilians. The police would say that ARSA was responsible for various raids, attacks, and kidnappings, and while ARSA claimed responsibility for some of them, they denied any attacks on civilians. Maybe they did attack them and lied about any involvement, or the military attacked the civilians and tried to pin all of the violence on ARSA. Even the United Nations condemned the Myanmar military for genocide, for their so-called clearance operations. Reports from the UN were extremely different from those from the Myanmar government. While the UN estimated that more than a thousand have been killed during 2016's attack, the government estimated maybe a mm, hundred tops. I wonder how you get such different data. Then again, the Rohingya people did not have citizenship, nor were they included in the census, so it must be very easy to turn a blind eye to these numbers. On August 25, 2017, things took a turn from bad to worse. In another one of those he-said-she-said situations, the military accused ARSA of launching coordinated attacks at various police posts at 1 a.m. 71 people died in total, most of them being ARSA members. Arsha, though, denied this accusation and said that they were defending themselves and Rohingya civilians from all the rape, killings, and torture. So the military and government decided they again had to do something about this. They had to once again try to contain these Rohingya people and make sure they don't try to disrespect the government again. This clearance operation was put in place right after the August 25th attack by Arsha. And once the Rohingya civilians learned of this, they all began to make their way to the border, hoping to arrive in Bangladesh before they were killed. On August 26, the military troops went all out. Soldiers were ordered to, quote, kill all you see, whether children or adults, shoot all you see and all you hear, end quote, by their superiors, and they did just that. Entire villages were set on fire and burned to the ground. This entire situation was basically what happened in late 2016, but on a bigger scale, with more deaths, more torture, and more misery. In less than two weeks, over a thousand civilians were dead, most bodies dumped in mass graves. By the third week, it was estimated that around 370,000 refugees arrived in Bangladesh from Myanmar. According to a medical charity, almost 7,000 civilians were killed within the first month of this operation, and nearly a 1,000 of those deaths were children under the age of 5. Older people were shot and decapitated. Women of all ages were raped and then killed. 
children were thrown into fire pits or burning houses. For those that attempted to run, they were gunned down and then burned. Out of the 900-plus villages in the Rakhine state, 288 villages were completely gone, and of course, all these villages were home to the Rohingya people. At this point, it mostly feels like a huge conflict going on between the Myanmar military versus the insurgent groups, like ARSA. They both claim to be defending themselves, they both claim the other ones started the fight, but in reality, innocent Rohingya civilians were the ones getting killed. While the government reports consistently state that they were responding to ARSA attacks and that they didn't go after civilians, it's really hard to see it from their point of view when in fact so many villages are gone and so many people died. If they weren't killed in the villages, they were certainly gunned down trying to escape, whether by foot or by boat. Thousands more were simply missing. Their bodies never recovered. The government also claimed that a lot of the Rohingya civilians were actually the ones burning down their own villages, trying to get attention and sympathy. So again, not the government's fault, of course. Despite all this condemnation from the United Nations and other human rights groups, the government continued to do what they considered was best for the nation. Yeah, sure, they did kill a few innocent civilians, but it wasn't done on purpose. If anything, it was probably the ARSA and secret Rohingya insurgents killing innocent people. Since August of 2017, approximately 800,000 or even closer to 1 million Rohingya refugees have arrived at Bangladesh seeking food and shelter, and they live in the largest refugee camp in the world, Kutupalong. Over the years, though, Myanmar and Bangladesh have consistently repatriated Rohingya civilians, sending them back to where their nightmares began. I assume this plan is good news to Bangladesh because having to keep such a huge population alive in refugee camps must be a tough task. Some people in Bangladesh have claimed that because of the refugee situation, general prices and crime rate have both significantly gone up, making life a little tougher for the locals. Rohingya refugees are willing to work for lower pay, and I think you can imagine how that can impact the economy in Bangladesh. But is it really a great idea for the Rohingya people to be sent back? This was pointed out by several humanitarian groups, that the issue is not the repatriation, but making sure that nothing like this happens again. What would be the point if all these people run for their lives, get sent back, just to experience the same exact thing again? And it's not just the military and government they have to worry about. Since the country is mostly Buddhist, there are some hardcore extreme Buddhist groups out there who really hate the Rohingya. If peace cannot be guaranteed, why bring these people back? The two nations had a memorandum of understanding, stating that the refugees will be sent back in a, quote, voluntary, safe, dignified, and sustainable manner, end quote whatever that means. The original plan proposed in 2018 was to begin sending 1,500 refugees back per week, and that supposedly would take two years to send all of the existing refugees back. But if the government continues to raid Rohingya villages and kill all these people, the repatriation would probably never end. 
As for the Rohingya refugees, most of them did not want to return to a place that didn't recognize them or respect them. So in other words, definitely not voluntary. That's understandable, and I doubt most people would want to go back to that lifestyle, where you feel like you don't belong, or you have to worry about getting killed by the military. I would say a lot of refugees were tricked into returning to Myanmar, though. The Rohingya refugees would be asked to provide their information by the Bangladesh police in order to receive food and basic necessities, when in fact, the information was used to generate lists in order to send them back to Myanmar. Sneaky, isn't it? The Myanmar government was never very firm on how things would change for the better, but just stated that things would be better. They had zero plans on helping the Rohingya people rebuild their lives or their homes. No confirmation on whether they would get citizenship or not. In the year 2019, Myanmar was accused of genocide by international groups. Gambia and various other Muslim countries felt anger and sympathy towards the Rohingya situation and asked the ICJ, or International Court of Justice, to take emergency measures against Myanmar. Myanmar went to court in December of 2019, and Aung San Suu Kyi, the person known for democracy and human rights in Myanmar, sided with Myanmar's government and military. I guess I see why, because she had a position in the government, and regardless of her personal stance, it was probably necessary for them to stand together and defend themselves in court. Or maybe she genuinely doesn't think there's anything wrong. Who knows? Some people have said that this felt like a betrayal, mostly because it's from someone who was a supposed advocate for world peace and democracy. And while I do see that point of view, I wonder if there is a lot more to it. For all we know, she could have been put in a difficult position. And even if she didn't agree with the government, she wasn't the one controlling the military and police. So the Myanmar government has always insisted on their innocence. There was never any intent of genocide, no ethnic cleansing. They didn't kill innocent civilians, and they definitely did not destroy villages. Here are some accounts that I found from the Rohingya people and their experiences. One man stated that the military showed up and started gunning down everyone in sight. Once they finished, they gathered those that were still alive and put them in houses, 10 people per house. Then they proceeded to rape the women, and after raping them, they locked the survivors up and burned down the houses. Another man stated that the military gathered groups of people and just simply set them on fire and watched them burn alive. Children seemed to have it just as bad. They were small, so it felt like the military were having some quote-unquote fun with them. Children would be snatched away from their mothers and thrown into fires or rivers. One 26-year-old woman stated that her husband was gunned down on his way to his store in the market area, and then his store was set on fire. The military later came to their village and grabbed her along with 29 other women. She was brutally raped by three men, and if she tried to look into their eyes, they would just punch her in the face. She gave her personal account to a journalist later, and soon after, she realized her life was in danger. The government began to try to clear their military of any wrongdoing, claiming that these rape allegations were fake news. Many of these survivors who managed to arrive at Bangladesh had filmed some of the atrocities the military committed in their villages, 
ranging from decapitated bodies to mass graves to villages burning and everyone screaming in the background. Two soldiers who took part in the 2017 August attack had for some reason fled Myanmar in 2020, and both gave testimonies of the kind of violence that took place in the Rohingya villages at the International Criminal Court. The kind of things the two men described far exceeded what everyone else expected to hear. And even then, the Myanmar government continues to deny any wrongdoing. In a rough estimate, approximately 25,000 were killed, 19,000 were raped, 43,000 were wounded, and about 1 million ended up as refugees in Bangladesh. Many countries have publicly condemned the Myanmar government for their violence. But despite everything, Myanmar's government continues to proclaim their innocence. The refugee camps in Bangladesh are facing a different kind of crisis. Resources are scarce, and just recently, many refugee camps were burned down, resulting in several deaths, hundreds of injuries, and thousands of people with no place to live. Once again, these people have lost a home. Life as a Rohingya refugee has got to be tougher than anything you could imagine. You're not welcomed or recognized in the place you supposedly call home. And not just that, your life will forever be in danger if you do return. But living as a refugee in Bangladesh means you're also not a citizen in that country, and you will continue to be confined to a designated area, and you will always be labeled as a Rohingya refugee. Unfortunately, there seems to be very little most people can do aside from donate to Rohingya refugees and, of course, condemn the acts of the Myanmar government. So there you have it, a general introduction to what we know of as the Rohingya genocide. This topic was definitely not covered as extensively as I would have wanted to, but hopefully it's not too confusing and complicated. I know sometimes topics like these can be a bit hard to digest, and hopefully you guys get the gist of it. If this is a topic of interest to you, I highly encourage you to find other documentaries and learn more about the crisis. As I mentioned earlier, Myanmar is currently facing another situation with the military, so we will see how things play out. If you are in a good place financially and want to contribute and help, there are a few places you can donate to. I will post the links in the show notes. Writing this one episode was pretty tough because, you know, history and stuff. But I really do appreciate you guys for tuning in and for being open to hearing about these things. Please be safe, be kind, and we'll talk to you soon. Till next time. And again, before I go, thank you to Juvstall from the U.S., Read the Pod from the U.S., and Zoe Valerie from the Philippines for your lovely and kind reviews. Much appreciated. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.